have two um, readings for today if you want to follow along the screen or in your Bible. Um, the first one is Genesis 2, 9 um, and 16 to 17. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Holly. Well, let's open our year with prayer together as a community. I'd invite you to just Close your eyes now and become aware of this past year and its departure. There's no getting it back. And so let it go. Your father has cleansed and made pure all that was wrong. He is making right all that has gone astray. He's only come for you and will only be with you every step of the way into this next year. Another breath now into the body and just becoming aware of this moment here together in this room in San Diego a Sunday morning of letting go and resolving, Father, for your glory, to trust you and to walk with you, to talk to you. And I pray in this generation of the church for a radical, radical reorientation of our attention. We have been lured by the wiles of the serpent. We have taken the fruit of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in this season, your gentleness and kindness, your absolute love for each one of us, is drawing us close to you. May these be people of the kingdom, not of this world. People of the spirit, not of their own agenda or control. People of Jesus, people of the king. We take our stand this year, Father, and we resolve to be held by you and loved by you, to keep our eyes wholly and completely focused on you as you direct our steps. There is not a single mistake in this room from the infants all the way through to the aged, from womb to tomb, you have given us infinite purpose. In the smallest details of our lives, you are present and working. And so, Lord, may our community continue to grow in vibrant love for one another, discerning what is best in preparation for the day of Christ, that we may be pure and blameless before you at your return. May we be well prepared, and may we, Father, hunger and thirst for your return. And may we herald the gospel to a lost world. The good news, the king is coming. The king has come. The king is coming. He is alive. Trust him. In Jesus' name. All of God's people said. You know, you and I, we as human species, we are creatures of, 
acute observation. We see things in their detail, whether we're conscious of that or not, and we are people of mimicry. We copy that which we see. So in the world of psychology, from infancy, we watch our caretakers, and from what we see them doing unconsciously, we develop our own personal sense of identity and our emotional structures, our belief structures, our ideas about what meaning and purpose are. And so our healthy and unhealthy attachment, relational attachments as they're called in that particular discipline, with other humans, even with God himself, our attachment to God himself, some would argue, are largely built on what we observe and what we experience in our earliest days of life. You and I, we grow up unconsciously mimicking what our models showed us. And we're almost on autopilot until those behavioral and emotional patterns no longer serve us well. Usually somewhere around our teenage years, it gets pretty rough. Our 20s is like, whoa, what's going on? Our 30s is like, I need to discern where there's some unhealthy patterns. And your 40s are like, I'm kind of starting to figure this out. And I hear the 50s, 60s, and 70s are like really good. I can't wait for that. So from psychology to neurobiology over 30 years ago, a group of scientists discovered what we now call mirror neurons in a community of primates. These neurons, they light up and they mirror in the observer's brain what we see in another. For example, when I take time to smile at all of you this morning and look you right in the eye, your mirror neurons that correlate to the neurons that make you smile in your brain automatically go off and unconsciously, whether you want to or not, those brain cells are firing, cascading this whole set of hormones and chemicals that make you feel just a little bit better and you and I are united socially. We begin to care for one another. So smile a little bit more this year at each other. So you got psychology, you got neurobiology. How's about a little sociology? Gen Z is dressing like Gen X did in the 90s. <laughs> Social conventions and fashion trends, they radically shift because some 16-year-old kid thought that his dad's high school yearbook fit was kind of sick. So what's he do? He goes out and he thrifts a pair of Levi 550s, some old school Jordans, and a nappy Weezer t-shirt, posts it to TikTok, and next thing you know, rather than me having to wear those Seattle skinny jeans, which were so uncomfortable, we're back into baggy jeans, which I really love and appreciate. Thank you very much, Gen Z. Now listen, our monkey see, monkey do tendencies, they're more than just biological and sociological phenomena. Observance and mimicry of one another is theological and deeply spiritual. God actually designed us to model our beliefs and our behaviors after one another, whether we want to or not. We are designed to intertwine with each other in unity, whether we want to or not, because that intertwined unity of belief and behavior is a reflection of the Trinity, that most ancient and important of Christian doctrines, that God is three separate persons, but one in essence. You and I, as his people, reflect that in our union with one another through belief and behavior. We are designed to do it. We cannot not copy what we see in one another. It's how we were designed to actually come to know ourselves and others in common unity, in community. The core of Christian practice is actually focusing our attention and then emulating the life of Jesus Christ, mimicking his beliefs, mimicking and modeling his behaviors, and making them our own. Therefore, for this year, awareness arranges how we interpret and navigate the human experience what you and I focus on, we become. Attention leads to transformation. 
as image bearers in God's creation, we have the unique, as far as we know, we're the only species that has the ability and the weighty responsibility of choosing where we direct our attention, choosing what we focus on. We have the unique responsibility of deciding who and what we model and mimic. So both secular and spiritual sages have long taught that we must pay attention to what we are paying attention to because what we are paying attention to is transforming us. It's shaping us. It was Socrates, that great fundamental and foundational thinker of Western philosophy, who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates understood that a life lived unaware of where one's attention was fixed was a life adrift, a life lost. Now, the authors of the Bible, they take that axiom one step further. The teachers in the framework of the Bible teach that an unexamined life, a life lived unaware of what one is paying attention to, is not only not worth living, like Socrates would say, but the Bible would say that it's a life that's not being lived at all, dead in your sins and trespasses, as St. Paul would say to the Ephesian church. The human story is a tragic tale of misdirected attention. It's a story of wrongly placed focus that actually deforms us and eventually destroys us. The Bible is the story of God's redemptive work to reorient our attention onto that which makes us fully alive, fully human, able to actually flourish in the way that we were designed to. And so from its first pages, we learn where and how and why we so often focus our attention on faulty things that fail us. Again, from Genesis, from which Halle read for us, when the woman saw, placed her attention on, focused on the fruit of the tree, and she saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The woman saw and took her attention, drawn away from God by an enemy of God, was twisted and turned and deformed and clouded. And so she took that which was good and beautiful and true, and it was transformed into something evil and ugly and deceptive. And as the first humans gave their attention to the liar, they began to see things through a distorted lens. The very gifts that God had given them, all of a sudden through their new perspective, were not enough. Though they could eat from every single tree in the garden and they lacked nothing, now they believed God was actually holding out on them. So rather than seeing the world through abundance and gifting and lavish blessing, they could only see through scarcity. Will I have enough? Do I have enough? God may not give me enough. Though God promised to be with them, provide for them, protect them, and bless them, through this deceived perspective, they saw themselves, they experienced their limits, their absolute dependence and helplessness, their neediness, their humanness as not good, not tov. The exact opposite of what God had said. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's representative. It's a paradigm, if you will, 
of how an enemy of the creator deceives humanity, clouds our vision of God and God's will for us, causes us to take that which is good and beautiful and true and redefine those terms outside of God's authority, away from God's presence, in contrast or in opposition to God's purposes. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. The tree represents humans taking our lives and creation itself into our own hands, seeing only through our limited perspective, confused by the lies of an eternal and very dangerous enemy of God. Now, Before we go any further, maybe you're here this morning and you're fulfilling that New Year's resolution. (laughs) This is the year to change things. This is the year to get things right. And so church seems like this might be the good place for that. Maybe you're one of those beloved many who are saying, you know what, I walked away from the church a long time ago and it hasn't helped. So I'm going to go back and give it one more shot. Listen, well done. You are here because some part of you is finally giving in to the hunger to make sense of this life. You want to hear from a real God. You want to know that you are loved and you want joy and abundance and he wants to give that to you. What's happening to you in this moment here at the beginning of 2024 is your attention is radically being reoriented by the mercy of God. And so you're looking to refocus and find truth and meaning. And I want to welcome you alongside the rest of this community. You are so welcome here no matter where you find yourself in the journey. And I want you to know That while the Bible has some terribly, terribly confusing things in it and very, very difficult things in it, God this morning is writing you into his story as one of his beloved and most cherished characters. Just receive that. Just receive it. This particular story, the Genesis story, honestly, Genesis 1 through 11 and the entire book of Revelation, when I became a Christian, I was like, "Mm, I don't think we need this. I don't understand this. I struggled with it for many, many years. And I just want to address the fact that in a room like this, we all come from very, very different points of view. We all have very different positions on all sorts of different things. And while I would love to try to delve into the subject of how we regard the actual historicity or the literalness of the story of Adam and Eve, we don't have time. What I do want to say, though, is I'm convinced that the story is both historical, it actually happened, and metaphorical. As you'll learn here at Neighbors, the biblical authors were absolutely brilliant, and they were more than capable of pulling off such literary feats of combining historical and metaphorical to teach us. For our purposes, no matter where we find ourselves in the room this morning, all we have to do is agree on one thing to get through this particular Sunday. The point of the passage this morning is to show us that what Adam, the first human, Adam, and Heva, source of life, Eve, what they did, we do. It's a picture of the overall human condition from which we are all ailing. The dynamics at play in the garden are at play in our hearts today. What they paid attention to led to their corruption and ultimate destruction. We too tend to focus on things that we are utterly convinced Some of our New Year's resolutions have their focus on things that we are so convinced are good for our lives. They're pleasing to the eye. They will give us place and position and power and security and love. But our misplaced attention, apart from God's direction and through the deception of this malevolent enemy of God, can and will result in destruction, if not turned from. Whatever the tree, whatever the tree was, be that historical or metaphorical or both, 
it represented Adam and Eve's opportunity to trust, wholly trust, that their creator was good and wise and capable. It represented humans' opportunity to allow God to define goodness, to allow God to define truth, to allow God to define beauty, and to keep their focus on God and his definitions and his truth. And they failed. And we fail. They defined and we define good and evil for ourselves. They saw and they took, we see and we take for ourselves. It is the ongoing human tragedy. Now, this theme of seeing and taking, it threads its way through the rest of the Bible and all of human history. Our attention is continually diverted by deception, by our warped desires, by deformed beliefs. Our clouded perspectives confuse and corrupt and destroy one another and ourselves as we take from one another. Cain saw that Abel was favored, so he took his brother's life. Samson saw pleasure in women and power through violence as ultimate, and he ended up taking his own life after his eyes had been gouged out by his enemies. It was this gruesome illustration of the destruction wrought by wrong focus and wrong attention. Saul, King Saul, could only see himself as the preeminent one, and so he tried to take David's life and ended up ending his own life in shame, falling on his own sword in humiliation. Then King David afterwards himself let his gaze linger too long on a woman bathing naked on a roof, impregnated her. That baby died, then murdered an innocent man, her husband, which led to the eventual downfall of the Davidic kingly dynasty. Even the disciples who walked with God incarnate among us, the disciples of Jesus Christ himself in the first century, couldn't see Jesus clearly. All of them saw Jesus through their own lenses of political revolt, of personal power jockeying, of tribal warfare. Most, most, most disciples left Jesus when they came to realize what he was actually saying. When they came to clearly see, my goodness, this guy is not going to establish my place of power, my kingdom, my will on earth as it is in heaven. When they came to clearly see that he was not going to do that by taking the lives of their enemies, but by giving his life for their enemies and then calling them for them to give their own lives for those enemies, many of them left. Too much, too much clarity. Yet, and this is our generation. Oh, beloved church, be encouraged. This is our generation. For those who stayed, those who could see clearly the call of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and they learned to trust. They learned to trust that God was wise and beautiful. They learned to let God define truth and beauty. Jesus gave them new sight. He healed their blindness. It's through a radical reorientation of our attention this is a gift that the Bible calls repentance, to bring up some of those good old school Bible words. Repentance. It's through this radical reorientation of attention, through repentance, that this small upstart community of political enemies, blue-collar laborers, tax collectors, prostitutes, misfits, a collection of lepers and fools, they went on to turn the Roman Empire upside down. In the name of the Master, Jesus Christ, that they now saw clearly as the only true and viable answer and hope for not only themselves, but for the community and the generation in which God had placed them. That's us. He is the only hope. If you see that clearly today, that is a radical reorientation of what much of the church has believed for the last 50 years. 
with all of our political silly shenanigans and all of our money grabbing and all of our silliness. This generation is saying, it's not going to work. We need Jesus. We actually need the resurrected encounter with Jesus Christ to change our cities. The story of our lives is an ongoing story of seeing and taking. This is what we do. The experience of corruption and then this eventual redemption through a radical reorientation of our attention back upon God wholeheartedly and his will for our lives. Now, there's three primary themes of forbidden fruit. This is where we're spending the next three months till we get to the book of Colossians in the month of April. For the next three months, there's three forbidden fruits that weave their way through the story arc of the Bible, human history, and our hearts that we are not to partake from. God says, trust me, don't take this fruit. Don't eat from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Class, would you repeat that with me? The world, the flesh, and the devil. No, no, no. Bad stuff. Bad stuff. That's our focus for the next couple months. Then we'll hit the book of Colossians. Then we're going to spend 12 weeks in the minor prophets, Obadiah, Nahum, all those books this summer. It's going to be sick. Then we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount this fall. It's going to be such a great year. Why? Because all of the theme this year... If last year was rest as a way of being, um, what was it? Thanks, guys. (laughs) Rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing. This year, the way that that comes about is by looking away, diverting our attention from, and looking towards. Look away from the faults and deforming influences, world, flesh, devil, and look toward the goodness and the truth and the beauty of God wholeheartedly this year. So this spring, we're going to establish this sort of thematic idea for the whole year of look away, look toward, look away, look toward. Every series, everything will be geared, all of our community group discussions, anything that we do in training for small group leaders, it will be geared through this thematic lens of are we looking away from the false things of the world that distort and misconstrue and deceive? And are we looking towards the truth and are we letting God define and do what he wants to do in and through us? We're going to define in depth and detail over the next few months what these false and dangerous influences are. And we need to learn to discern where our attention, we have to discern where our attention, you see, deception, when you are deceived, you don't know you're deceived. That's the problem. Blind spots are really a discovery and oftentimes a shock to the system where you're like, whoa, I didn't know that I thought that way. And so this year will be a year of us discerning where our attention has been lured away from the kingdom of God, from the power of the Holy Spirit, from Jesus Christ, our King, who loves us unconditionally, infinitely. From Adam and Eve to you and I, every generation, every generation is, forced, is, is faced with a choice. Not forced, but faced with a choice. Will we live with the standards of the world and the flesh and the devil as our point of view, or through intention and practice and faith receive and live with the kingdom of God, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ as the clarifying lens through which we see and experience life. A life as he intended us to live it. A life that he said would be a life abundant. A life of humility. A life of generosity. A life of joy. A life of peace. A life of love and shalom and tov, as the Hebrew sages called it. Look away from the world. Look toward the kingdom of God. That's the next three weeks. When we observe our society and culture, we see that the world offers us fame and accolades, money and power, pleasure and comfort. And the temptation is for us to focus on taking and eating from its fruit, 
many, many Christians, including myself, I am the first to confess as the chief of sinners among us, have offered a lifetime of prayers, asking God to give us what the world says is good and true and beautiful. And then we stamp Jesus's name on the requests for things that he said, things that he warned us we might gain, but lose our soul in the process of getting. This is a sweet release for me in this season of my life at 47. Such a sweet release from the world's temptations to just be like, my goodness, I've been chasing that in the name of Jesus? Wow. Why? We know deep down that the pleasures and the promises of this world, they disappoint and they destroy. You know it as well as I do, sitting there in your chair. And the world is constantly changing and shifting. Culture and society offer us fruit that spoils so quickly. Sometimes it's like these recycled Levi's 550s and a pair of worn-out Jordans and a nappy Weezer t-shirt that goes on generation after generation or a few decades later or a few centuries later, but it cycles through and it never lasts the fruit of the world. For some, for some, we strive to make our way in the world and we never arrive. You wake up one morning and you're like, I don't think I'm ever going to succeed according to the standards that the world sets. That's bitter fruit to eat. That's a jagged little pill to bring up Alanis here on Sunday morning. <laughs> you guys are all too young for Alanis Morissette, huh? Just go listen to Alanis Morissette and you'll get it. Indeed, that's bitter fruit to eat. For others, the fruit of the world comes in basketfuls and droves. Success comes easily. Now listen, I'm going to throw a curveball. This was thanks to my wife. You and I are the ones that success comes too easily. I know that you and I think we're missing out and that we're not successful, but when you look at the standards of the world around us and then you look at where you and I are as modern urban San Diegans, my goodness, success has come to us in basketfuls. Our dreams are actually being fulfilled and that fruit turns out to be rotten and unsatisfying and meaningless. How many of you guys were here for Koheleth, the teachings through Ecclesiastes? Man, what a cold splash of water that was to wake up every single Sunday morning knowing, okay, I gotta go listen to this guy talk about how everything is hevel, meaningless, smoke, ungraspable, uncontrollable. We're all gonna die. And it was also extremely healing because for uber-affluent, super-comfortable, very, very successful American Christians, it's one of the greatest awakenings we can have is to say, my goodness, I have so much, and I'm still one of the most depressed people in the planet group? What is that? Turn away. Look away. Look toward. Look away from the flesh. Look toward the Holy Spirit. This will be in February. Our practice for February, as we're introducing nine practices over four years at this church, our practice for February will be fasting. How much fun is that going to be? Every week in our community groups, we're going to be fasting together, as in not eating any food. I know that some of you actually resolved through January to fast from social media. Well done. February, I'd like to call the entire church. No social media for all of February. <gasps> our flesh. Let's talk about this for a moment. Our flesh. Our flesh. Flesh is biblical shorthand, especially in, in the language of Paul. Flesh is biblical shorthand for all the deformed and warped desires that we have. Flesh in, the, in Paul's mind is, is not just the physical, corporeal, touchable body that we live in. It's, it's our psychological and emotional patterns, both healthy and unhealthy, but primarily unhealthy in Paul's mind. It's the warped belief systems that we are born into and that we develop over time. Our flesh, though, listen, friends, our flesh, this thing that we live in, these psychological patterns, these emotional reactions, all these belief structures that we were raised in, it is utterly convincing. 
It's utterly convincing. We don't win over the flesh by pretending like it doesn't draw us and convince us, because it is utterly convincing. It is impossible to deny giving our full attention to our feelings and our desires and our deepest belief structures. They're there, and all of those things were designed to be focused on God. What discernment does, though, is it begins to recognize, oh, these deepest desires and longings and emotional structures that I have were designed for God, and I've been seeking to satisfy them in worldly or in ungodly or in fleshy ways outside of the kingdom of God, taking and eating. And our, our satisfaction in the love of God has been diminished by sin, and so we're utterly convinced. Our separation from from God through sin has blinded us. And so we are convinced by our flesh, by our emotional patterns and our emotional reaction, our psychological belief structures. We are convinced that what we want is better than what God wants for us. I've never been able to track down the fountainhead of this quote. I think it's Ignatius who said, sin is our unbelief that God wants our highest happiness in mind. Sin is our resolute unbelief. It's our choice to not believe that God has our highest happiness and greatest flourishing in his heart. And so St. Paul, through the month of February, will instruct us to focus on the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit as we fast from food, social media, all the things that entangle us in these broken patterns of belief structure and emotional reaction. And he challenges us to look to the Holy Spirit within us who's renewing us and our minds according to the scriptures. It will be a month of reading the scriptures deeply and enabling our truest self, the new creation that you and I are in Jesus, to emerge over time. We pay attention to the Spirit. We make room for what he wants to do in and through us through practices that we engage in, be that fasting or many, many others that we're teaching on at this church. And then we model our lives after what Jesus did and how he believed. Look away from the world to the kingdom, from the flesh to the Holy Spirit. Look away from the devil Look toward Jesus this year. Now, I recognize some of us might be saying, Dan, that's kind of extreme. <laughs> I've never focused on the devil in my entire life. I'm kind of scared of the devil, actually. <laughs> and that is exactly how the devil deceives us, beloved. The devil is most certainly in the details of every one of our lives. The enemy uses distraction and exhaustion, emotionalism, depression, loneliness, anxiety, fear, shame. The devil uses entitlement and pride, affluence, comfort, and wealth, and a thousand other weapons within his arsenal to misdirect our attention from God and onto anything but God's saving grace, God's saving power, and God's saving kingdom. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. That means he's beautiful and attractive. He's pleasing to the eye, and he promises wisdom and godlike status, not by coming to us and saying, I will make you wise and make you like God. That's way he bluffs. It, doesn't, it never comes across in that way. And so if we'll only turn our gaze upon him, if we'll only pay attention to him, in the language of the temptation accounts in Matthew chapter 4, if you'll only bow and worship me, he would say to the king, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. The devil's lies look so good, especially when interwoven with the emotional patterns and psychological reactions of our flesh, placed within the systems of the world that echo chamber the devil's lies. He looks so good and beautiful, but in actuality, there's a pollution and a corruption and a killing and a destruction that's happening. But with Christians, again, this generation, you and I, and I have been 
lamenting the church for so many years. And over these last four or five years, you guys have actually healed my vision of the church. I actually am so, so grateful for the Lord's church. So excited about what Jesus Christ is doing in this generation. Because I think with your generation, it's like the devil tipped his hand a little bit too far. And this generation of the church is calling the bluff. It's like all of a sudden, suddenly, a lot of us are aware that we've been living according to lies. We wake up one morning, we're like, I think I've been living according to lies and not the scriptures. My goodness, how did that happen? And it's happening in young people and old people across the spectrum from all sorts of different political positions, relational, social positions. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. God is awakening his church to these false points of focus. And he's settling our focus on the life and teachings of Jesus. And that is where we are truly healed. Now, Christian history, again, it's marked by these moments of massive revival from Pentecost there in the book of Acts. Luke tells us in chapter 2, there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and boom, this massive revival happens, this renewal happens. And we see that spotting throughout history. And we've been praying for those kinds of things, myself and a cohort of leaders, for many, 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 many years. There are times... And these are times, these reawakenings, where God is just, he's basically reorienting the attention of his church. It's like he's awakening us to see more clearly. Now, last year, Lex and I, every year we do uh, about a three or four-day prayer getaway, specifically for our church, for you guys. And last year, the Holy Spirit made it so abundantly clear that for us, neighbors, this year is this local expression of the body of Christ. For us, this is to be a year of preparation, going to get a little bit weird if you're new to church here, but preparation for the return of Jesus Christ. Preparation. To believe that the king might come and that when we stand before him, we would be a bride unblemished. That's my job, to care for you in such a way that you are unblemished before him, your bridegroom. That preparation echoes the voice of John the Baptist before Jesus came at his first coming. He cried out in the wilderness telling people to turn from their corrupted and false hopes. And he was calling out the political structures. He was calling out the religious elite of his day. He was both a prophetic and a pastoral critique and voice in his culture in that moment, all in the name of, as Isaiah would prophesy, preparing the coming of the Lord. And it may not be the literal return of Jesus. I honestly pray that it is. I'm ready. I'm ready for Jesus to return. It may just be the outpouring of his spirit. But just to even stir a little flicker of a flame like, whoa, what if he did return if I faced him today? Just that. That's, that's, all, that's all we're going for this year. We believe that we are at a critical flashpoint in this generation of the church. Your pain and frustration, unmet expectations of life. Those are the gentle forms of discipline that our Father has been working through to bring each of us respectively to a place of deeper surrender and receptivity to his love. Christians across the nation here in the West and in the United States in particular are, are losing their faith in the social, political, and secular false promises. The devil's just, we're calling his bluff. We see the cards too clearly. We're seeing through the lies of distraction and exhaustion through the lies of self-defining and isolating individualism. The church is once again desperate in the conversations I have for community, for authenticity, for humility, for truth, for meaning. And so we believe, myself, so many of us believe that the church is primed for God's power. And so we prepare by looking away from all that has kept us from wholeheartedly and completely following him. 
Now let's wrap up for this morning as we come to communion. For us as Christians, all this has its foundations in the crucifixion, literal. Death, literal historical. Literal historical burial, literal historical physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. As soon as Adam and Eve had taken the forbidden fruit, whatever it was, the Father was already working mercy and redemption into their lives. He covered their nudity and their, with sacrificial animal skins. He promised that there would be this snake-crushing, truth-telling, beauty-creating Savior who would come for them and for all of humanity. Now, millennia later, Paul, as a rabbi, explained this from Old Testament text, saying that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Literally, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The cross of Jesus Christ is the tree of life. And it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we are supposed to eat from every single nanosecond of our lives. His body and blood is the fruit that we are to take down into our bodies and be transformed, taking in his very being into ourselves, becoming like him as we are literally with him and in him and through him. Looking to the kingdom of God literally means that we are reorienting our attention. And listen, like Aaron said in the teaching notes, looking to the kingdom of God means that we are also going to die. We're going to die to this world. We're going to die to the flesh. We're going to die to all that the devil has to offer. I mean, St. Paul himself in this same book in Galatians would say, I have been crucified to this world. Crucified. Now, that's painful. If you're new to neighbors, we will never, like, sugarcoat, give you your three steps to your best life now sermon on a Sunday morning. I'm sorry. This year is going to be rough. It's a political cycle this year, guys. It's going to be rough. There's wars everywhere. Who knows what's coming down the pike for 20? It's going to be rough. There's economic strain. There's all sorts of stuff that we're facing this year. And a radical reorientation of our attention says, and I've died to it. Whatever he takes from me or gives to me matters not. I only want to serve his purposes in this life, and there's greater joy there. And so through hindsight, when kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven... We'll look back on what we thought we were losing here and giving up and dying to, and we'll recognize it was so infinitesimal to what we were being given in eternity. This is why Paul prayed, and this is our prayers. This is what I, I pray this for you every single morning as my church. I'll pray this for you all year. I would invite you to pray with me. Paul prayed this in Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, knowledge, so that you may know him better. Knowledge of good and evil, not taken into your own hands, but through the spirit of revelation. He would pray later, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed these things because we are being invited to eat from the new tree of life, the new tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Through the cross, whereupon Christ was hung, and the resurrection, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Every single thing that you have resolved and set goals for this year is met in Jesus Christ alive for you this year. And after now, today, marking 26 years doing this thing called Christianity, I am more convinced than ever that the only thing you and I actually want is to be loved by Jesus Christ and by his people.
as we come to communion this morning, I want to invite you to pray. Pray and receive. Pray and receive. You know, the problem with New Year's resolutions is that they're resolved in the flesh, these patterns that are fickle and incapable of fulfilling what we call them to do. The power of Christianity is that we look to the Spirit and we say, I can't do this. And so, Lord, help me to resolve to be with you, to be held by you. Lord, help me to even have a spirit of revelation to know how loved I am by you because I don't even know how to know that I'm loved by you. That's been one of my prayers for 10 years now. I don't know how to know that I'm loved by you, Lord. Direct your full attention, heart, mind, body, soul, to the presence of God who is always with us and just ask him. He is so tender with you. He's so gentle. He is not angry with you at all. He's overjoyed and delighted for you to come to him exactly where you are and wherever you find yourself in your mental patterns and ask him to just reveal snippet by snippet. He's very careful. He, does the onion. he doesn't just like cut the onion in half. He goes layer by layer. And there's a lot of layers, friends. A lot of layers where the world, the flesh, and the devil have been sort of making our soul stink like onion. <laughs> Here at the beginning of this new year, old Bible word, repent. It is the source of our joy. Repent. The Hebrews used a word that was translated most literally, turn away, look away, let your attention be reoriented to the kingdom of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, the King. And as we look away this year, and as we look towards his coming, may, may this year, and I, with as much unction and gumption and oomph as I can put into my life and body for your sakes and the goodness of God in your lives, I pray that this year would be marked by a growth in peace and love, that you this year would become a person of humility, real generosity, and that you and I and we together would be a people marked by a subterranean joy that lights up mirror neurons throughout the city of San Diego with these kind of goofy smiles. A settled like, yeah, it's, there's a lot of suffering that we're seeing. And underneath that is this subterranean joy of the King coming, our lives together, drawing our attention away from this broken world for the sake of this broken world to heaven, to heaven on earth. Let's all stand. Father, we bless your holy name this morning in Jesus' name. <clears throat> These war-torn and ragged souls, may they this day have a sense of solidarity with one another. We together here in the foxholes of this world stand fast for your glory and we stand fast and courageous we will be firm for there is no work done for the glory of Jesus and in his name that is not rewarded and does not fulfill its purposes in this life and so may each of these saints be sent as missionaries this week in the enterprise of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven may they be satisfied fully and holy may they repent deeply may we together be one receiving the love of Jesus Christ it is objective it is true, it is ours, it is fully within and all around us. Meet us this day as we commune with you at the table of communion and send us this week and this year, should you tarry, as ambassadors. In Jesus' name.